Hi, everyone. I'm Shamko Chowdhury, and I'm a current second-year MBA candidate at the Warden School of the University of Pennsylvania, and you're listening to the Warden Fintech Club podcast. On this podcast, we're talking about the complicated but fast-evolving fintech space in India. And today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Arpit Ratan, the co-founder of Z, a fintech startup that offers a digital onboarding solution enabling secure digital compliance via artificial intelligence and blockchain. Arpit studied and practiced law before founding the startup with his brother and has ever since embarked on the journey to make digital financial services more secure and accessible through what he calls a global digital trust system. Along with the various accolades that Z has received for its innovative approach to solving regulation with data, Arpit himself has been recognized as Forbes 30 under 30. Welcome, Arpit. We're really excited to have you here today. Hi, I'm excited as well to be here and chat with you on this uh, subject. Great. So I gave a little bit of a background on you. It's clearly an illustrious background. We would love to hear a little bit from you about where this all started, how you decided to move from a career and education in law to moving into this fintech space that brought you to Z. Uh, yeah, so almost, I think, four years back when I was a lawyer and I was running my own law firm, my brother at the same point of time was uh, running his own data analytics company, having come back from U.S. in one of the data analytics companies based out of New York. And we started recognizing together, at least uh, discussing on how, while most businesses were very digital, uh, there was a lot of penetration of technology in different business verticals. But we, when we looked at compliance uh, and legal within business, it was still very, very paper-driven, very manual. And we said that this is a problem that we think we want to solve. And when we looked at it, we said that this problem, of course, is the largest within finance. So finance become automatically one of the industries we wanted to target first. But the entire genesis kind of came from the point where we felt that legal and compliance still remained in a last century approach versus the new technology approach of the 21st century. Right. Because this kind of area of regulation and compliance is obviously the part people dread most when they're onboarding or working with any of these services. And it, and it really resonates when you say this is particularly a pain point within finance. I'm interested to know in your legal career, did you have a lot of interaction with the financial services world? Were you completely detached with that? How did you, you know, what kind of knowledge and skill base were you coming at the financial world with? Uh, yeah, so when I was a lawyer, I was dealing largely with corporate advisory. And I did have chance to deal with a lot of regulations by the Central Bank in India. We have a markets regulator, so the market regulator in India. and. Uh, there were two things which uh, were really uh, bothering me even back when I was a lawyer is one that how a lot of the laws and regulations haven't changed in years, even though uh, technology had significantly improved. And one of the examples is hand signatures. And uh, basically hand signatures came into existence somewhere in 12th century because that is when uh, ink and paper was kind of became industrialized. Right. But since 12th century to today, we have better technology to record 
consent, we have better technology to record agreements, but somehow the whole world still functions on hand signatures. And that was, these were questions which would keep me up at night, that how do we kind of take this legal world and move them into 21st century rather than being stuck in the 12th century. And the second thing, which when I was dealing with my customers and clients, I realized that for most customers and businesses, uh, legal was somehow being a sort of barrier instead of an enabler. So the legal and compliance team within a business would always end up being a more resistant, more friction. Uh, and we said, uh, this is something which seems like a large problem. And if you can solve for it, uh, you would not only uh, make it efficient, but maybe you be able to enable businesses to do their business much faster, grow it, scale. So that right. is, no, uh, yeah, that, that was... Absolutely. I, I, that's the part you said about legal feeling like a barrier, not an enabler, definitely resonates. I'm sure people have had that experience in their respective firms as well. Speaking specifically about financial services, because I, you know, legal and compliance differ so much from country to country. I would love you to paint a picture for our listeners about what was the the compliance and legal situation like? What was that complexity? What was that paperwork heavy process before Sciency? And then talk a little bit, tell us a little bit about what Sciency does and how it's changed that. Uh, yeah, so when we were starting our company, we tried to open a bank account and uh, it took us a month with almost all major banks. So we kind of went and tried to open accounts with almost all the banks to understand their process. And uh, a month was like an average. And we realized that it is something which the bank wants. And even we want. Even as a customer, I want to get onboarded in a bank. As a bank, they want to onboard me. And even though both of right. us have the same intent, it somehow just takes a month. And uh, we said that this can be solved. And we kind of did our homework, did our own research, built a lot of technology. So now we work with a lot of uh, banks in oh. India and one of our large private banks does it under two days. Like all 90% of their account gets opened under two days. Uh, one of the private banks we now work with, they are able to do it in real time. So they can open your account in an STP mode just by using Sciency application and our AI decision engine. That's the kind of, you know, from a month you can make it real time and, th and that's like, it enables your business to grow, scale, helps them reduce cost, make it more efficient. Absolutely, absolutely. So just kind of unpacking what you just said, there was a lot of great information there. When when it used to take a month, could you just dive a little deeper into why was it taking a month? What was, you know, all the paperwork and back and forth involved that was, despite the bank's best intentions, making the process so long? Yeah, so I, I think uh, we narrowed it down to three things that a bank has to do. One is... And, and of course, the start of it is that uh, today the entire process is paper-driven, which means somebody needs to physically sign a form, somebody needs to physically submit documents, somebody needs to physically fill up the data in the form. Uh, but even if you remove that physical part, which I think is more of collection, the other challenge which bank has is on their backends. So a bank... Right. Yeah, so a bank a backend typically was doing three things which we identified. One was it looks at a document and says that this lock document looks okay to me. So like you can have a driver license and 
a bank staff at the back will say, yeah, this is like a driver license to me. The second is a bank matches this information to your form and says that this information which is in the form is matching to the documents in front of me. And the third thing mm-hmm. that a bank does is a banker does on the back end is to actually apply a lot of its business rules and risk rules to come to a conclusion whether this person should go through my onboarding process or not. And right, that right. all of this uh, can now be done by So now artificial intelligence is good enough. Uh, the technology leap has been taken where you can recognize documents, you can read documents, you can match them to another text, and you can run uh, rules which can both be algorithmic and be driven by AI, allowing you to make decisions in real time, at least for majority of the cases. And that's what we started doing. So we removed the human from the decision-making process, especially on the back end. Uh, front end, uh, I think you need a human for sales, so that still remains. Um, we don't need a paper. Uh, we replaced it by an app. We replaced our document by taking pictures, and everything then flows into a great middle engine, which does all the decision making, does all the processing, and just talks to the core, uh, making the entire onboarding process uh, almost real time. Right, that's super impressive. Do you think understanding the use cases here? Of course, consumer lending may be one of those. There's the world of business lending as well. Are there particular situations where, because I'd imagine when you first started, even just the Know Your Customer KYC documents may not have been as standardized across the different banks, different accounts, different use cases. So was there some effort, that upfront effort that went into figuring out a standardized set of documentation, then, you know, being able to test your algorithms against that and then convincing your first few customers that this was something they could trust as much as a human. Yeah, so see, interestingly, and this is true globally, right? Most KYC is driven by the regulator. So it is the regulator which comes up with a rule book or a guideline uh, based on which most banks then form their own policies. So more often than not, a bank would always in some way or the other confirm to a central rule which is being formed by your central bank or whichever financial regulator is operating in that geography. And therefore, when we started building our product, we kind of, instead of, we did ask customers for a more experienced point of view, their process point of view, but for our knowledge, we actually went more first principle and we said, uh, what do the regulations really prescribe? And at a lot of time, we had to convince the compliance teams within bank that even though you have been doing a certain thing in X way for last 10 years, but the regulation allows me to do it in a Y way, which is more efficient. And uh, we were able to make a lot of these compliance teams agree to our process because it was compliant as per the regulator. And that took a lot of time. That took a lot of convincing. It took a lot of uh, white papers. It took a lot of research to convince the compliance team. But but our approach in all geographies has always been that go first principle. Just go by the regulation and say that this is what the regulator allows. And then you say, what is the best technology that allows you to follow the regulator and just implement that best technology? Got it. And so what, what are the limitations of the technology today? And where do you think, you know, where are you excited technology-wise about this going in the future? Uh, so I think artificial intelligence, even though has improved significantly in the last two, three years, I think it still needs to improve to the point where you can even do it more accurately. So even, for example, today, uh, we have a lot of cases 
which we would throw human ops uh, because the AI is uncertain. And that is definitely one area of improvement which will keep improving as your engine sees more and more data. I think the second, I think more challenging uh, thing we see, especially in banks, is that most of them are today working on legacy systems. And therefore, right. it is slightly challenging to actually work with a legacy system, integrate with a legacy system. And one technology leap, I think, which financial institutions will be taking is kind of migrating their current workflows, migrating their current applications to a new technology, which is more open, uh, talks through APIs, uh, allows for easy sharing of information and data. And I think that is a technology leap that as a financial industry uh, needs to be taken. Uh, and, and that's not only in India, but that's pretty much globally, even in US, I think most banks are working with uh, a very legacy system, which kind of does not very well match with the new API approach the world is going in. Right, because the financial services legacy tech systems are, what you're saying, more closed traditionally and specific to each kind of banking organization, whereas where data is moving going forward is more of an open architecture that should be able to speak to each other. And that's a industry-wide leap that you think, you know, most financial systems need to make. Yes, absolutely. And especially because of the fintech, which are coming in, which have better service, better consumer experience, easier access to data. So they are able to do so much because their systems are new, uh, they are agile. And I think banks are feeling the right. heat at the moment and they will change. Right. We've spoken a ton about data and of course, Sciency plays squarely in this data space in, in India. Could you outline for us some of the challenges of data asymmetry, especially as it relates to financial services in India? Yeah, so I think that's a good point. India is, even though there is a lot of talk about data, especially because India implemented Aadhaar, uh, where we have kind of solved for our KYC, individual KYC at least, India is still a very uh, data poor when it comes to uh, credit decisioning. And there seems to be not enough uh, reliable data available for majority of the customers. So there's a very small population in the country which has a good data and uh, it's and that's like a single digit percentage. And uh, it's almost that all financial companies are targeting this single digit consumer in this country and which have all the options. But if you look at the unbanked, underserved uh, population of the country, one large problem which everyone has is that there is not enough data to provide financial services to them. While uh, a lot of it now the government is pushing to be solved uh, because of different schemes that they have, but uh, one challenge still remains is a lot of these uh, do not have access to even simple services like mobile. And therefore, uh, and if they don't have mobile, they don't have data, they don't have and therefore, a very large population in this country actually has very, very minimum data available for them to be given financial services. And that is definitely a challenge in working uh, in India at the mo moment, especially if you're in consumer finance, credit, etc. Right, absolutely. And, and you mentioned Aadhaar, which was obviously one of the big initiatives. So I want to take it back to just unpacking kind of progress that has been made 
and separating that from what yet has to be done. Of course, there was a big push, as you mentioned, from the government, from kind of central authorities to increase the amount of data available for, for you know, Indian in general. There was this, all this discussion around, you know, India stack. So Aadhaar and having everyone have their you know, personal biometric and financial information linked was a, was a big initiative. There's been initiatives to get, you know, tax data more available, also with GST to get better reporting and things like that. So uh, since you're the expert on this, I would like to get your thoughts on where you think progress has happened and, and where do you think the gaps are? Break it down for us. I mean, to be very honest, it depends from which side are you looking and uh, because there are different angles to the Aadhaar story and everyone has their, and take, I'm trying to take a very neutral view, even we being a company are somewhere in middle of it. But uh, I do see that uh, one large problem we have solved at least is that um, now the entire population of this country, the 1.3 billion, has an identity, which was a challenge before Aadhaar. So I think that you should give all marks to the government they have been able to give identity to everyone in this country. Uh, it has enabled for them to open bank accounts. It has enabled for them to receive their subsidies in their bank account, which has reduced the cost of providing these services by the government to the end consumer. So again, I think fantastic approach, great execution. On the other side, of course, the challenge remains is privacy. And Aadhaar came into... Uh, some controversy Supreme Court had in between passed a judgment, uh, making changes into the way it was operating. And the and right. some of it has left uh, premiers post the judgment also. Uh, and I think it's a genuine issue which uh, is being constantly raised is of access to this database, who can and who cannot get access. And that is still a very uh, open topic like today uh, we joke around it that if you ask anyone in this country any expert any government nobody can tell you what yeah. is the actual legal status of it because, because it is so right. so gray right now there are so many regulations uh, kind of conflicting with each other supreme court judgment so any anyone cannot give a correct view and therefore it becomes challenging as a business that how do you invest in a product if you do not know uh, legally whether it's compliant or not. And uh, I think that is one I, thing which needs to be solved one way or the other. People need to know what is the current legal status and it just doesn't seem to be very clear at the moment. Uh, and that has kind yeah. of not allowed a lot of finance companies to uh, invest. A lot of them had invested in Aadhaar a year ago, a year or a couple of years ago, and then they were not allowed to access it. So, had kind of brought the entire spirits down. So, so that is where we are. So definitely we need a more clear regulation as to who can use Aadhaar for what purposes, etc. And, uh, and and Aadhaar then only solves for identity. It only solves that this is my name, this is my date of birth, this is my address. Yeah. But it does not really allow anyone to give any other information. Like you, I really don't know who you are whether you are a money launderer, whether are you a fraud, are you a good customer, are you a bad customer. So Aadhaar just solves for one part of it. And therefore, right. the larger the problem remains for financial services to solve is other data which can allow me to make 
decisions to give you a product, which can be both a loan, it can be a bank account, it can be a mutual fund, it can be insurance. Right. Uh, so that part of data is really missing. Got it. No, I think that's very helpful to understand. And so moving past that, you did mention that Aadhaar is only one piece of the puzzle. And I'd imagine Sign Z connects to many different data sets and gets this holistic kind of understanding of a customer to be able to do this kind of decisioning. Can you give us a broad just understanding of what kinds of data sets exist today in India? Uh, what kinds of data can you get today? And who, you know, who are typically the providers of these data? Are these private players? Are these government providers? Just give us an understanding of the data ecosystem that we're playing in. Yeah, so India has the bureaus. Uh, so you have a bureau data, which is basically your lending history, your credit card history, which is available. Then you have uh, different government departments which do publish their own data. Uh, so for example, the uh, we have a transport uh, ministry which has their own publication where you can find details of somebody's driving license, uh, their actual history. If they've been fined, you have registries which have vehicle registration along with their entire history of that vehicle available to you being used extensively for giving loans on vehicles, giving insurance on vehicles. Right. Uh, you have right. uh, different agencies which are taking care of different pets. So for example, there's a food uh, authority in India which has provided food licenses. So you have that data. So like that, if you go into each industry, then you would find specific data available about that industry. And uh, I think yeah. what we do is we kind of, so today we have around 170 services which uh, come as part of our platform. So we kind of plug in a lot of these together and make it available to our end consumer, which is a financial institution. No, that's, that's awesome. And given most of these are bureaus and, and it's working with the government, I'd imagine there was a decent bit of just difficulty in dealing with them or cha different challenges of how do you convince certain authorities to share data with you? How do you integrate with them, get the data in a certain format? Did you experience that in working with these bureaus? What was your experience in kind of working with government stakeholders on one side and then financial private stakeholders on the other? Uh, yeah, so I think uh, bureaus has been, uh, for us, uh, the idea is to have deeper engagements. Uh, one challenge which they have, which is genuine, is security. So you have to convince right. that you are secure, uh, you are meeting privacy standards of storing, keeping data, uh, you have been audited. So we as a company do take out ISO audits. Uh, we are ISO certified companies from security point of view. So, so that is one thing that that is certain that you need to be having your own policies which are matching theirs, at least when it comes to compliance right. security, which becomes challenging. Yeah. The second part of it is just support, just service and support, which I think uh, you cannot expect too much. And that is something we're kind of trying to solve for our end customer. So that's, that's a problem that we solve in any way. So we can't be shying away from it. Right, 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 right. That, that, that's, I think, great insight into into that issue. Speaking of security, that was the other, other than privacy, that was the other kind of data issue I was going to touch on, especially given that you're coming from a legal background. What are your thoughts around data security in India? What are the big challenges today? And how, how do you expect the space for data security, the standards for data security to evolve in the next, you know, three to five years? 
Yeah, so I think India is right now going through a sense of transition when it comes to data laws. Uh, we are in the process of passing our uh, data privacy bill, uh, mostly in this session, and that will kind of monumentally change the way data is looked in this country. And today, of course, uh, we hardly have any law uh, to pro protect the data of a citizen. But once this new bill comes into being, suddenly there'll be a massive transformation within uh, different organizations. And uh, there are two things we are talking about at the moment, and, and it's privacy and security. And we do feel that once there is more emphasis on it, banks even today are not looking at blockchain to solve for large problems, but we do feel that uh, blockchain will become an important part of the solution because it allows for both protection on privacy and gives enough security on data. And that is one big trend we kind of are predicting uh, in the next two years in India. Yeah, that's, that's very exciting. And I did notice that SignZ does uh, you know, speak about blockchain as part of its offering. Could you speak a little about you know, what you guys are currently doing with blockchain and how that's been a part of your offering? Yeah, so uh, today, most of our blockchain work is uh, under wraps. We do not uh, publish it. We are not at the moment selling it also. And there are two reasons. Uh, one, we feel that it is not right time in the market for us to put that product out to our customers. And second, we feel right. that we are not at the stage where we are comfortable exposing the entire part of our puzzle because we have still to figure out some pieces. But largely what we are going to solve for is that we feel that current data architectures, which are storing private information, are not secure enough. Right. They are as good as the last human. So most data architectures today are just for trusting that this human will kind of do its job and will not leak the data. So all data leaks right. which happen typically are happening because one human gets compromised in the chain. And it's that one human right. which compromises and kind of reveals or leaks. So we believe that it's not sustainable. It might have worked in the last decade or two, but going forward as we are talking about the real-time transactions, real-time processing, huge volumes, everything going digital, we don't see that right. being scalable at all. And we feel that uh, all these systems in the world, include, including financial systems, will require a new kind of data architecture. And that would somewhere include uh, blockchain. And blockchain is, is, of course, a very fancy term. But uh, what I'm actually talking about is a distributed ledger system and a hash protocol to store. And I think a distributed ledger and a hash protocol will kind of become an important part of data architectures going forward. Blockchain by itself may mean nothing, uh, to be very honest. That's a very helpful breakdown. While you were talking about all this, I, I just thought back to the phrase that, you know, I've heard you refer to, seen it on your guys' website as well, this term around a global digital trust system. Now that we've talked and unpacked yep. a bit about Z, talked about your vision around revamping how data architecture is thought about, especially in financial services. I'd love to hear your vision around what is a global digital trust system and how do you see this panning out? Yeah, I think that's very interesting because that's kind of core to what uh, we have been trying to achieve. And what we are saying is that today, if you look at the world, 
we move through trust given to us by either a government. So, for example, I deal with a bank because a government gives a license to a bank and says this is a bank. And I am somehow not trusting the bank, but I'm trusting this government license, which allows for regulations, which allows for enforcements, etc. And therefore, and, and similarly with even products, right? Today, I buy from Amazon because not because I trust a seller, but because I trust an Amazon. And if you look right. at why this is happening is because the trust by itself is actually always offline. So I trust Amazon because I see ads, because I see their billboards. It has been presented to me. It has been told to me. So what I'm really trusting is the offline mechanism. If if I want to buy a property, mm-hmm. I would like to see the paper because the way I've learned to trust is through paper and document. Right. The hu- whole human right. habit of trusting is actually based on an offline process of trusting somebody. But if you take an example right. of, let's say, giving loan to a friend, I won't ask yeah. for a document. I won't even do its credit bureau check. I would not even bother about, you know, setting up a mandate to get my money back. But I'm almost certain that I'll get my money back. And this is based on some kind of trust protocol. One is I identify that friend. I know some part of background of that friend. And the third is that I have this social pressure uh, or some kind of a social enforcement mechanism where I know that this friend will give my money back. And what we want to create at Sainzi is a similar digital trust protocol where unknown people in a system can trust each other, can know enough about each other and can transact with some kind of risk and reward. Uh, available so that they can enforce their transactions. And eventually, I think that is what needs to happen. So you have different part of human life which are getting digitized, uh, whether it's your social life, whether it's for you, you're watching movies, whether it's talking to people. Uh, one part of human life, if you look at has has never seen digitization is, is your trust, which is kind of remaining offline. And at Science, we're trying to digitize that trust. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. I think this concept of moving how we trust, being something we do offline or face to face through something tangible to the to the digital world, especially amidst all this discussion around privacy and and security. I think it's definitely something exciting to look for in terms of behavioral change in the future. So, uh, you know, shifting gears a bit, yeah, I- discussing. <laughs> generally about your business model. I know you work a lot in the lending space, looking forward almost, looking uh, you know ahead in terms of what lies ahead for you guys. Are you guys thinking about other spaces within financial services, be it wealth management or you know even payments or, or other areas that you could expand to? How, how do you think about expansion? Uh, so at the moment, I think uh, we are doing good in India. Uh, the, we have already started looking at a strategy to enter other markets. We have signed up a bank in Nigeria. We have signed uh, some LOIs with banks in UAE. And uh, we also have uh, one POC engagement with one of the acquirers in uh, US. So for us, this strategy is very clear in expansion is to move in other markets uh, outside India and take our technology, which are building in India, to different uh, geographies across the world. So that one idea for us is clear and the second thing we are looking at least in india is that can we implement the same identity systems that we have uh, used and utilized in banking to 
other industries. So we already have signed up some of uh, the companies in shared economy uh, where we feel trust is required, especially with the amount of transactions, the amount of activity going on. So this is clearly for us two ways uh, to expand geographically and horizontally uh, into other industries. Got it. That's super exciting the way you thought about expansion to beyond fintech in India, thinking actually about other markets and also thinking about other industry verticals that are not just finance because this identity problem applies to them. Great. You know, it's been great chatting with you, Arvid. Before we wrap up, I'd just like to see if you had any last thoughts on big challenges, big opportunities, if you're thinking in the next five years in this fintech landscape in India. What are you excited to see or what are you scared about? Would love to get some final Yeah, I think India at this moment is the most exciting fintech destination globally. And I've traveled now almost all parts, all regions. Without a doubt, it has the highest growth potential. And I think one, and and there are multiple challenges I like to see being solved in India. But one large challenge which definitely needs to be solved in India would be actual enforcement, uh, which can be termed as collections or actual enforcing contracts because that remains a huge problem still to be solved where the lenders can lend very quickly, but when it comes to actually getting their money back, it is taking time okay. to do our court system. So I think that is one large problem to be yet solved in India, which can both lower the interest rates, uh, reduce the risk of lending, and maybe even show you even greater growth. So that for me will be a big challenge to solve. That makes sense. I know there was some attempt to push at that with the IBC and the resolutions around that. Do you think that that was a step in the right direction? Where do you think we need, what do we need more of? Yeah, I think IDC was great, but IDC works for very, very large NBA problems. And for the smaller ones, it's not even worth going to IDC. And uh, what you would eventually see is that the cost of collections in India is, is so high that banks are ready to shave off 20, 30% of their actual income, uh, of their actual money owed, just in order to close a, a particular uh, you know, borrower book. So the problem I think remains in India is that the cost of getting this money back is too high. And what I would like right. to see is, and I don't know how it will be solved, to be very honest, if I knew I would be kind of jumping into it and trying to solve it, but I do see that for a smaller ticket size loan, there doesn't seem to be a cost-effective solution. Most people just give up. They're like, it's fine. I'm not going to collect. Uh, They would take it as the cost of their business because that doesn't make sense to collect uh, a small ticket size loan. Right, right. That's that's an awesome perspective and hopefully to see because I do know that especially with the current news and, you know, a lot of these defaults and increasing... NPA rates has come to light and hopefully we'll see some meaningful progress in this direction in the future as well. So thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Yeah, I think one it's, great. it's been great listening about your journey and more about Science Z and kind of thinking about this innovative way that we're approaching data technology and how we expect human interactions to change in the future. So thanks so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Same, same here, Shopa. I think it was great chatting with you.